Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey, Solar Warriors. Welcome to a very special episode of Suncast. At least it's certainly special to me. Suncast turns three years old this week. And to celebrate, I get to reminisce a little with my very first guest on the show, Adam James. Thank you for tuning in. If this sounds unfamiliar to you, well, I hope you'll check out some of the earlier work on Suncast. With over 116 episodes, there's so many timeless stories, carefully curated and saved for your enjoyment. But if you are smiling at the fond memory of this tune, I suspect you're one of the Suncast faithful. And I want you to know that I'm probably out there running right now and smiling along with you. But in case you forgot, here we go from the top. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and actions shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle. A battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs who are building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Today is a special day indeed in the life of Suncast as we're celebrating Suncast turning three years old. Wow, I can hardly even believe it myself. And I'm so grateful that you're here. I'm excited that today I was able to finally get my old friend Adam James back on the show. It's a reunion, of course, but it's also a fascinating look in how Adam spent the last three years at SolarCity, then Tesla, and most recently, his foray into venture capital at Energy Impact Partners. So get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. What was your favorite episode of Suncast? And why was it the very first one? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. My favorite episode was number one. Correct answer. We'll just stop you right there. (laughs) Did you enjoy that little montage history of the Suncast introductions? You know, I've only changed it three times in three years, but I have a feeling we'll be playing around with it still more until it feels just right. Hey, after the episode, I will take some time to thank a few folks, but here up front, I do want to say thank you to a very short list. Thank you to you for listening. You tuning into Suncast every week is what makes this possible and it keeps me coming back. 
Thank you to my guests. You make this so meaningful for all of us. And thank you to my amazing wife, Betsy. You may never hear this, and that's okay. I want my tribe to know how much they owe to you, your steadfast support, and your unwavering belief in my often crazy ideas. On a lighter note, I think Adam did a fantastic job of pulling out of me some of the significance of Suncast and reaching this milestone, just as my friend Scott Sullivan did recently in episode 100. But now it's my turn to turn the mic back on him, and I was as curious as I know you are about what it's like to actually go inside the belly of one of the most mythical solar companies of our time. He and I reminisce at first about the start of Suncast, but we do quickly get into his story, and it's a great one. Today on Suncast... It is a historic day for us. Uh, it's a historic day for the show, a monumental day for me. I'm really excited about the guest who I have literally spent three years harassing to get back on the show. I know it's not for lack of desire, <clears throat> but when you work in this industry, sometimes there are, there are obstacles placed in our way. So I just want to take an opportunity to thank today's guest, Adam James, for having been guest 001 on Suncast and also, as we'll discuss in a minute, having been a part of the inception of Suncast. Without any further ado, Adam James, welcome back to Suncast, man. Thank you. I am excited to be back. And three years. Congratulations, Nico. Thanks, brother. Yeah, a lot of milestones this year. And this is the one that stands out to me as a bit surreal. So yeah, it's been, it's been a journey. For those who listened to episode 100 with Scott Sullivan, you got a little bit of a taste of kind of how this all started. And if you listen to 000, the very first episode, you get a taste of why I jumped into this. But today, we'll spend some time talking with you, old friend, about then and now. I hope that we're going to laugh a lot. I feel like we're going to learn a lot. And I'm just really grateful to be able to bring it full circle. Yeah, likewise. I'm thrilled to be here. So for those who are unfamiliar... Adam James started his career in the solar industry, at least when I was introduced to him, back at Green Tech Media Research, GTM Research, where he was an analyst for global markets. And he took on the mantle of uh, this product, this project that they had called the LATAM PV Playbook. And if you go back to episode one, the entire focus was on Latin America. Of course, that is how we launched this, uh, you know, this fun adventure. Back then, didn't know how many episodes we were going to go into. I was still working full-time at Conergy. And you were working full-time at GTM with a little secret that you didn't share with me or anyone else. Do you remember when we recorded that episode? I do. Yeah. And was the, was the secret that I was covering Latin America from the Midwest of America? That was one of them. Yeah, exactly. That you, <laughs> that That's I'm my not, favorite. That I was, I was our Latin America analyst based in South Bend, Indiana. Yeah, exactly. But you also, I think at the time we recorded the episode, were already one foot out the door at GTM. Of course, you couldn't tell anybody that, but it kind of feeds to the story. And so I'll give a little bit of backstory here that I haven't shared with anybody about Adam and I. Adam and I used to have phone calls on a very regular basis, not the least of which selfishly on, on both parts, because we wanted to know what the other had insight into around the Latin American market. I was developing solar projects for Trina and the solar market for Trina and then for Conergy. And he was an analyst covering Latin America as one of his segments for GTM. 
And he had this thing called the Latam Solar Update. I think it was a newsletter quarterly or maybe even monthly that you were working on. Well, Adam and I would get on the phone and I remember as clear as day, the moment I was standing in the conference room and the, you know, the Miami office of Connor G. And uh, I said to Adam about three quarters of the way through a phone call, I said, hang man, I really wish we could record this. This is the kind of thing I'd put on a podcast if I ever started a podcast. And I asked Adam, would you co-host a podcast with me? And his answer was yes, which he quickly retracted a couple of weeks later. Uh, he said, I I'll record episode one with you. Let's see how it goes. I'll see if GTM will let me do more. So graciously, we did episode one, which if you go back and look, I didn't change anything. It actually was, I recorded it as episode one of the LATAM Solar Update. At the time of recording, I still not only didn't have a logo or cover art, didn't have an idea of what I was going to call the podcast. It wasn't named Suncast, and I ran through a ton of different options and ideas. And I stand here three years after, kind of amazed at how Suncast has evolved, how the LATAM market has evolved, and, you know, and how your career has evolved. was able to watch you blossom, and we're going to dig into that as the, the core episode content today, I believe. But I have really enjoyed watching someone who has so much promise grow out of a research role where you were sort of tangentially connected to the market to a very hands-in-the-glove moving markets role at Solar City and Tesla, and now your role moving forward into the venture capital. So for those who uh, have been following, Adam left Green Tech Media. Hell, why don't you tell the story of, of post-episode one, where you evolved to and the brief arc of your career up to now? So first, you know, it starts in sadness, right? Which is that I had to step down from being able to co-host the podcast with you. So <laughs> not a great note to start on. But <laughs> despite starting in the, in the red a little bit, I, I went on from GTM and uh, joined SolarCity, working for their EVP for global strategy. And, you know, it was a really exciting opportunity. The mandate for the job was this kind of blank slate of SolarCity wants to expand globally. Where do we go? How do we do it? looking across all different segments, a variety of different business models and partnership styles. And so, yes, it was a really interesting opportunity. And it gave me the opportunity to take what I've been doing at GTM, which was kind of looking at all of the non-US markets for solar and uh, a little bit for storage as well, and say, where's the absolute best opportunity for a company to go? And I think one of the things that I, I learned over the course of doing that project, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things, but one of them was how much you have to tie in strategy with a, with a company's true operations and strengths. And so I think for me, as it going, coming from that analyst position, that was the most, that, that was the new information to me was instead of this hypothetical business plan for a hypothetical business, having to come up with a real business plan for a real business and look at all the different twists and turns about what might make it successful or not. It was a great experience. And then I, I went from there, I, I rode through the, the acquisitions. I was, I've been on the Tesla side for the last few years and for them have been focused on special projects work, which is shorthand for anytime there's something new that needs to get done, generally kind of global in scope, and they need one person to kind of be point on making sure that everything happens the way it's supposed to. You know, I took on a lot of those kinds of projects. And, uh, and then recently, just in the last few weeks here, I joined a venture capital fund up in New York called Energy Impact Partners as their, as their new chief of staff. So that's the short version. Amazing. It's so interesting. And you eloquently described three years of... Uh of high growth in your career. I'm eager to see where Energy Impact Partners takes you because I think you have a lot to offer our industry that 
decouples you from one particular business and allows you to put your influence into a number of entrepreneurial ventures that are happening in the in, in the world as we see it and and that are looking ahead of the curve which is one of the reasons i'm really excited to bring you back on suncast and just again really grateful that we have this opportunity that you're no longer sort of locked behind the marketing media curtain of tesla and uh, solar city you know i want to just back up for a second it is important for me to put a pin in the fact that to my recollection you don't have an mba right that's right i've gotten the the MBA, the the real world MBA of having to build and improve businesses. But yeah, but yeah that's that's true. I, I don't have an MBA. Didn't go to an Ivy League school. I went to a, a state school and yeah, and, and I've kind of come from there. So I should say like whenever that comes up, one of the people I'm really grateful to was my very first boss, my first job at the Center for American Progress in DC, which was a think tank where I remember her sitting in her office and her having my resume and her saying, you know, we just need more people from state schools and getting the job. And there was just this moment of like, you know, of real appreciation for having it be more than about just what was on paper. I was also not a great student. That certainly didn't go in my favor either. But, you know, I wasn't a stellar student or going to a, a necessarily to a great school, but I got in the door for that opportunity because I'd gone to a professor and basically offered to work for free. And I just hmm. worked super hard. You know, he worked at this think tank and had a role open up with him. And I'll say, doggone it, you're a fast study. You assimilate data and information into cogent arguments and you're diplomatic. Like that part of living in the Beltway certainly served you well. You are really good at taking into consideration the stakeholders' needs. These things aren't things that you learn in MBA school. So I just want to point out to you solar warriors, if you're looking to Suncast as some sort of template for your own career. I want to point out that you don't always have to be as some previous guests have been, Ivy League educated and sort of coming from an energy background and and have that leg up. I hope that through this conversation with Adam, you'll see that it's not so difficult. There's an element of risk and an element of luck, but it's not so difficult to parlay skills in one area into application in another. And, and I think that your pivot from GTM to Solar City was genius. Can you explain how the conversation unfolded with you and Marco Kraples, just so people understand like what lengths you went to to get this job and how I remember you going through it was gut-wrenching, this decision to move to Solar City. There's two things about that jump that really stand out to me. One was, I think first and foremost, on a, on a personal level, it was just extremely hard to leave GTM. I mean, for those of you who have had a job with people that you really just love, where you love everybody that you work with and work for, and you learn a ton from them, it's almost like you couldn't have put an offer in front of me at that moment that I would have felt good about because I just care. I cared about where I was so much. So that was what made it hard. But what was kind of animating my decision was this mission-driven question, right? About how can I take what I'm good at and do the most good with it? So the opportunity that presented itself, which was really to go and work for the largest residential clean energy company in the world, and can I steer that ship in new directions? Like That was something that I felt like I had to do, even if it was really, really hard. It's also one of those things where you can call as many people as you want and get as much advice as you want. But at the end of the day, it's your decision and you got to live with the consequences. And it was such an interesting lesson for me in making the rounds and, and asking people's advice and guidance and coming at it, trying to come at it from a place of humility. And then at the end of it, still having to make a decision and getting a lot of different perspectives, but still having to sit with it. But on a more practical level, like how that opportunity came up, 
was that I, in trying to assess what was going on in Latin America, I talked to everybody you can imagine talking to. And, and I think I, I tried to and continue to try to not float too fast to the top of organizations. So what that means is don't just assume that because you're talking to the CEO that he knows everything that's going on somewhere. Um, so I was spending a lot of time talking to everybody from interns to you know junior project developers and a lot of the people who are really in the trenches in the market. And through one of those conversations, I got introduced to Marco. I sat down at dinner with them. I was in Brazil for Intersolar, where I was doing a, a presentation. And he invited me to dinner through this mutual friend. And I think he maybe asked me one question. And then I spent like 45 minutes talking, which you know was something along the lines of, if you were me, what would you do? And I just kind of went on for a while about where I saw the strengths and weaknesses of the company, what the opportunities were in Latin America, some of the things that everybody else thought that I thought were wrong. You know, I've got a lot of flaws, but an inability to talk at length is not one of them. <laughs> and somewhere between like minute 40 and 45 of me blathering on about all this, we kind of clicked a little bit. And he said, you know, like, this is what I need. Like, I need to know where to go, how to go there. Uh, and I need somebody who's going to kind of be my deputy in, in making this happen. And mm -hmm. that was kind of the rest was history. What an exciting opportunity. It bears mentioning you were down during your day job and you had this sense, I mean, we can talk about it now, it's been three years. You had this sense, like, mm, I, I feel like something more is calling me beyond GTM. And this opportunity presented, I remember very well, you called me afterwards. You're like, dude, I just had dinner with this guy. I can't tell you a whole lot, but I think I found somebody who could be a, a guest on Suncast. And they brought Marco in. I mean, he's a banker. He had been at Rabobank before. So Rabobank had been working with, with Solar City. He was brought in to be a strategy guy. It's important to think along the arc of Adam's career, how he leveraged his particular core skills and how he has found repeatability of those skills in different elements of his job. And we'll bring it to the current time as well. You know, when he saw this opportunity with Marco, a lot of what Marco asked you, Adam, was what's your advice? You have a better sense on the market, better pulse on the market. And being a good study that you are, I would argue that you are as good a BD person I've ever met. I'd put you up against anybody I've ever met in the marketplace from a business development perspective, from opening doors to making connections. You're a pro among pros. And Marco saw that. He saw the bud of genius inside of you that can extract information from people in a way that makes them feel like they aren't being taken advantage of. And that's a gentle and a subtle skill. And you parlayed that. So you were brought in as Marco's right hand, his ombudsman, his filter, if you will. And you parlayed that into, even after Marco left, a role, as I recall it, where you very much served a role within Tesla to filter and to serve as a guide, especially with Latin America, to all the way up to the Tesla board. Is that accurate? Yeah. Well, I think to call back to one of the things that you said, which is about making sure that people don't feel taken advantage of. Because <laughs> uh, that's actually something that's pretty important to me. I mean, I think that people don't want relationships to be transactions. I spend you know, nine hours a day at my job, five days a week, a lot of hours outside of that. I spend a lot of time doing what I do for, for work and for my career. And the contact with other people as a part of that, for me, has to be valuable. You know, those are important, meaningful human interactions. And so there's no, you know, I don't have a special bag of tricks when it comes to building those relationships. It's kind of been more that um, I'm genuinely interested, you know, in what people are doing and in what they have to say about it. 
I'm working on, not still great at being a good listener uh, when I ask questions. So I just want to underscore for people who are, especially people who are breaking into the industry or looking at like, how do I advance in my career? That if the focus is on advancing in your career, you probably won't advance in your career. Mm -hmm. If the focus is on getting to know people and making genuine friends and relationships and really learning about what people are working on and, and frankly, like offering to help people, not asking them for things, but offering, offering them things, seeing what you can do to help them. It's just crazy how fast that accelerates, not your level necessarily, like what your, your title is, but it, it accelerates what you're able to do with wherever you are pretty significantly. So I just want to give a little plug for, for that because I know a lot, of, a lot of people listen to this podcast when they're trying to figure out what to do next. And I'd underscore that as something that's been really important to me. To get to your question though about uh, at Tesla, yes, I mean, I think one of my first jobs coming in from Solar City was this kind of transitional exercise to say, all the work I'd done over the last year and a half, which was this boiling the ocean exercise of where should Solar City go, all of the modeling, all of the decks, all of the conversations I'd had, I'd, I'd drawn a few conclusions from all that work about where we should go and why. And so there was this transition process to make sure that that intelligence got around to the various executives who were involved in the energy business. And so for me, it was great because it meant that right out of the gate, I got an opportunity to really talk to and work with a lot of the people who were shaping and defining the direction that Tesla was heading. But also for me, what was really exciting about that was getting to share knowledge and, and look at, you know, Tesla is a very closed off company. And so you don't get any insight when you're not there. And so even at Solar City. We just had no idea what was going on. It was a total black box. And so there's this moment where the black box opened and I got to share a lot of what we've been working on and see what some of the folks at the, on the energy side of the Tesla business have been working on. And for me, there was this light bulb that happened then around, especially around energy storage and the opportunities for energy storage and the pickup for energy storage and you know, just the demand, the global demand for energy storage that was, you know, was a real aha moment for me personally. Because I think energy storage has just gone so much faster, accelerated so much faster than anyone thought possible. And so I got my kind of first inkling of that when I joined Tesla, and it's been really amazing to see it ride out. Now, I mentioned here, famously stole a lot from your early LATAM solar update. One of those things was a stat that you used basically saying that LATAM was the fastest growing market in the world at the time. It certainly was true. I wonder from your, based on your experience in Mexico and your experience helping guide Tesla's global advancement, what did you learn about LATAM that you can extrapolate more broadly? And do you feel like LATAM is still a fast growing market? Similarly, what did you learn about yourself switching into that private or that more commercial role? As far as lessons learned for actually doing business in Latin America, some of the things I'm going to say I know are tropes, but I'll, I'll explain why I think they're true now. So one example is having a local partner, right? And everybody says, oh, it's very important to have a local partner when you go into a new international market. And so that is true. I do believe it's important to have a local partner. And whether that's acquisition or doing a, a joint venture, I think that can be a really successful approach to market. I think an underappreciated way to have a local partner is to trust and hire local people who you elevate in your business. And I think that that's the one that I did not... I didn't hear that much about. And I wish I had kind of thought more about that as I was doing some of the exploration for, for business there is that I was pretty focused on this idea of what company should we buy or how do we build it kind of entirely ourselves or where do we do a joint venture? But what I didn't spend nearly as much time thinking about that I should have, I think, would be 
how could we hire maybe the top three, five guys in each market? Because everybody knows who they are, right? Bring them back and have them spend some time with our home base company and then send them back and have them be the ones who build this business for us. You know, and I think that that is probably a blend of, you know, having a local partnership that would work better. I think there's a lot of, it's very difficult to acquire a business no matter how smart you are, no matter how good your plan is, no matter how well you fit together, just acquisitions are hard and partnerships are hard. Like there's that old saying, you know, about relationships that one person always loves the other person more in a relationship. And I think joint ventures are kind of the same way. Like one person always loves the other person more. They're always giving up a little bit more. It's hard to navigate this politics in joint ventures, I think. And also just having tried to put together a bunch of joint venture deals, there's so many opportunities for the relationship or the deal to blow up as you move forward that unless it has the dedicated time and focus of both management teams, it's almost a fool's errand to try to go down the joint venture path. So so yes, I think, you know, my one takeaway would be have a local partner, but you know, my nuance on that would be consider hiring the best local people and then giving them a lot of latitude to build a business that they know will be successful. Another thing about Mexico in particular is just understanding some of the cultural nuances to Mexico and to doing business in Mexico. And so one of the best things about Mexico is that Everybody is very, very open. So people will talk to you about what they're doing, what they find exciting. And it's very easy to learn a lot about the Mexican market very, very quickly just because of how friendly and open people are culturally. The other side of that, though, is that everybody wants to kind of talk about doing business together, right? Like there's a million potential partnerships out there. But it's just very difficult, I think, for people to walk back from potential partnerships. So you know, saying yes, and then all of a sudden, months and months and months go by and nothing's happened. The confrontation is much harder to do in, in like that market, I think, and to say, you know what, this isn't working, let's try something new. And then I think the last one is that for some of the markets where auctions were the primary mechanism, there was not a strong enough reliance on like best practices when it came to auction structure. I think a lot of Latin American countries had this really amazing opportunity to use their utility scale procurement policy to advance new and exciting ideas. And instead, there were just kind of no real rules around them. And so what happened is that there was a lot of buzz and then things kind of blew up. And that happened in three or four different auctions down there. And that was really disappointing. And it actually sets the industry back in some ways much more than it moves it forward. And I always found that really disappointing. And so what I would say about that is, as far as a lesson learned from doing business in the market is, really take the time proactively to work with regulators in markets like this to do policy design. Because I mm-hmm. found that when you actually go in to sit down with them, everybody wants to hear your ideas. And those ideas are often like really taken into serious consideration as they're crafting policies. So people are really open to it. But on our end, on the industry end, we don't always spend enough time going down and educating people about what's needed. You know, And I'll give you an example. And I know one of these, at least one of these burned you. Setting a requirement, a bond requirement that is like high enough that you have to be serious about submitting your bid and following through, but low enough that you can get a lot of companies to participate. And if you just have no requirement, then what happens is everybody just bids the lowest possible amount, knowing that they're going to hopefully win it and then then ratchet their price up. And that's bad for everybody, (laughs) right? And so things like that are examples of of ways it can go badly. And then in, in the Chilean market, you know, having their their auctions structured around time of day, I thought like that was a really good example of an innovation in the market that, that everyone else should learn from and that they spent a lot of time talking to people to figure out what best practices might be. So long answer, but I think those are the main things that I drew from my experience down there. 
Hey, Solar Warrior, I have a question. Do you feel like sometimes you are bringing a knife to a gunfight? I talk to a lot of salespeople. I even talk to engineers in this industry, and sometimes, sometimes they're feeling stuck. They're feeling like they're still in the Stone Age, or as I mentioned, they're showing up to the battle ill-prepared. You know, according to Enact CEO Deep Chakraborty, there are still thousands of installers out there using CAD programs and Excel to make critical design and sales decisions. And some of you unwitting sales managers and owners are forcing your sales teams to wait, sometimes days on end, till their engineering counterparts can get back to them with a design. Can we stop the madness already and empower your sales team and your engineering team with simple productivity and accuracy? My friends at Helioscope created a software program to help you get through design faster and easier. 3D design, rapid proposals, bankable simulations, one-click sharing, heck, even integrations with energy tool base. The list goes on. You know, it's hard for me to believe that you're listening to this and you're not actually using Helioscope already. But to cover my bases, Paul has agreed that for Suncast listeners, you can get a not 30, but 60-day trial. That's right. Extend your free trial for an additional 30 days. All you got to do is email Paul or Knut after you sign up for your free trial of Helioscope, the fast, easy, and bankable way you and your sales team should be doing all your solar design. Sign up for your free trial at helioscope.com and email after you are all signed up and they'll give you that extension. Hey, we're halfway through this interview and I really hope that you're enjoying it. You know, if you're still on the fence about joining my Suncast tribe, you might be interested to know that this recording with Adam James actually took nearly two hours. And since my good buddy Tristan told me that I really should try to keep these under an hour, I've decided that when I do go over from now on with these episodes, like I did with Adam, and I'll no doubt do with others, I'll just post it up as extra content to my tribe members in the exclusive area for my inner circle to enjoy. Things like his thoughts on leaving Tesla and his answers to the hot or hype segment had to get left on the cutting room floor. I'm sorry for that. He even turned the tables on me. <laughs> he made me cry a little. If you'd like to check that out, or if you just want to drop a little contribution in my virtual tip jar, you can head over to mysuncast.com forward slash member and learn more. I'll see you in the tribe. One of the things that I mentioned earlier and I genuinely appreciate is how intentional you uh, have been and you think about business development as evidenced by you touching on what I think is one of the touchstones, one of the cornerstones of any good business development professional. And if you guys are out there doing business development, I literally just had this discussion this morning with one of my clients around a lot of the points that Adam pointed out, the last of which I think is the most important piece that most business development guys miss. They go down, they try to open doors to commercial contacts and they forget that a big portion in our industry of business development centers around influencing regulators and policy. And to the extent that you can influence regulators and policy, and even to the extent, as you mentioned, that you can influence even the, the characteristics of an RFP. You know, we played around with this back in, uh, in the aughts and the early teens when I was in DG development in California around finding a customer that wanted to sole source uh, but needed to run an RFP process. How do you give yourself a technical advantage while still maintaining and opening markets to regulations that are helpful for the industry at large. It's something that every business development professional has to be thinking about. So going across the border and developing relationships with entities like ProMexico, entities 
like Sanair, the government secretary and the government agencies that are trying and they were at the time that you were down there, they were in the throes of trying to figure out what should renewables integrating into the grid look like and advising from your perspective as an analyst, advising entities that were just beginning like Mex, became critical to helping transfer the data and knowledge that we've learned, not just in the United States, but in Europe, a lot of our friends from Spain and Germany contributed in Latin America to the general knowledge share that has helped most recently Colombia, who's launching what appears to be a well-structured tender in January. Finally, right? Yeah, finally. Yeah, at long last. One thing you said earlier, which is about what you know, business development people sometimes miss about their job is, is looking at that policy and government relations side. I mean, if all you do is go and open commercial contacts, there's actually a name for that kind of job already, which is sales, right? <laughs> like you're a salesperson. That's and right. that's fine. Like if, if you've got like, if that's, if, if you can have that singleness of focus in your job, but for entering new markets, and frankly, it's almost like every salesperson in solar is a business development person, not a salesperson. Because a lot of what you're doing is not just selling, it's about creating the conditions where sales can become possible. And whether that's going out and building relationships with people, like there's, a, I mean, there's just a lot to be said, like going down to your, in solar, it still means a lot. If you go down to city hall and spend 20 minutes talking to the permitting guy down there, like you will see more of your sales convert. And that can be in your hometown. That's not pure sales, right? There's a little bit of extra that you, that you can and should do, but because our industry is still despite growing really fast and being much more mainstream than ever, like it's not an alternative industry at all. It still is just very sensitive to local conditions. And local conditions are the ones that are most influenceable by individuals, which means that mm. as people in the solar industry, we have way more power than folks in other industries do, I think. There was two things I wanted to also bring back into the discussion. You mentioned about building a good local team. I don't do this often. I do want to point out a great example, one that I think just knocked it out of the park. And that is the Jinko team. I don't often call companies out by name, but if you look at a guy like Asier, I, uh, you know, he came out of the Sun Edison team where they had developed a yep. tremendous portfolio of business. And Jinko rightly recognized that Asier was one of the really seasoned contract managers and business development guys. And if you look at the, you know, tenders speak for themselves. Jinko crushed it, and Asier crushed it. And he was local in Mexico. I mean, he's now back in, in Madrid. He's done his tour of duty. But that's a great example of finding, like you said, cherry picking a team. And that Jinko team, they cherry picked from the best of the best in the market. And not all of them came from Sun Edison. And they really did a great job of setting one multinational player up for great success in Mexico at the right time. So it's absolutely true that you got to find you got to find people that you trust and it's not always about, like you said, uh, just acquiring uh, a local company. The other point I want to come back to, which is not necessarily a point, but a question I asked that I think bears uh, returning because I want your answer. How do you feel like you've grown and changed through this experience? What did you learn about yourself? Two things come to mind. One is there's a big difference between strategy and operations. There's a big difference between putting something down on paper and then being able to execute on it. And I think... I'm glad that I did my, have done my jobs in the order I've done them, where I went from that kind of strategic role to that more operational one. But I will say that there's a lot of things about being in the operations side of a business that I wish I had known when I was doing some of that strategic work. I can spend all day going through 
the rate structures in Thailand and you know when their demand charges come into effect and outlook for electricity demand there and what medium voltage customers are paying and habits and how many corporates are there and cross-referencing that against US companies. I can do all that legwork. But at the end of the day, you also just have to ask, how do you incorporate a business in Thailand? How hard is that to do? <laughs> you know, and like and things like that. And and I think around market entry, that was a piece of it that I am glad that I got some practical exposure to because you know I think that that's the thing that is really difficult to get in a consulting mindset is that the practical realities of opening an office, running an office, currency transfers, payroll, and I got exposure to all of that, especially in through Solar Cities Mexico acquisition. You know, I of soup to nuts of budget incorporation, the whole end to end process, and and I learned a lot from that. Just one other thing, I, I think, just as a personal note of, of what I learned is that, and this is more of a continuation of something I guess I theorized about before, but is that there is a certain amount of improvement you can get out of any business just by being really, really organized and creating frameworks where people can succeed. And let's say that that's like 70% of your possible improvements are just very consultancy improvements that you can put into place. The remaining 30%, you will not be able to get unless you spend a lot of time talking to individuals within a company and learning what their job is like what their job is really like on a day-to-day basis. You won't even know what's wrong unless you spend time talking and listening to people. And I think that was one of the other things that I learned in practice that I'm really grateful for is taking that time to really talk to everybody about what their job was like every day and using that to not only uncover new issues that we didn't know were issues, but to really go back and reevaluate some of the things that we had in place as policy and say, does this policy make a lot of sense or not, given how much of a hassle it's causing our frontline guys. And if I've got a sales guy who's really, really good, I don't want him to be thinking about how hard it is for him to file his expenses. You know, I want him yeah. taking all that time. And I'm sure there's lots of Suncast listeners who spend a lot of time taking photos of their receipts and stuff. Like, I would prefer to reroute all of those minutes to sales, you know, yeah. 100% of the time. And so things like that of like, just kind of for me personally, what that was about is learning to go into the job and not just saying, how can I make the business do better, but saying, how can I help you? And then using the, how can I help you to make the business run better? I love that. Well, Adam, let's turn the corner here to focus a lot more on where you have turned your sights. You've taken the route to the money side of the business. Many, in many ways, that might be the smart side, go to the investments, follow the money, as they say. Can you tell us more about energy impact partners where you set yourselves apart. I know you're in New York. Congratulations on the move and, and, uh, and all that means for you and your family. Help us understand why you're moving to the venture side of the business and what you see happening. Yeah, well, so to kind of refer back to that moment at GTM when I was looking at the opportunity at Solar City, and my animating question is, how can I do the most good with what I'm good at? And Energy Impact Partners, I've you know, I don't know that I've ever been more excited to start a job for sure. Uh, I mean, it's, I've had my eye on, on them for a few years since they raised the fund because mm. what I found really interesting is that they raised money primarily from utilities as their limited partners, then invest that money in exciting new companies in the sustainable energy space, some of which are in some ways like kind of disruptive to the utilities themselves. And so I just, I found that premise pretty fascinating. And since I've gotten here, there's a lot more nuance to what they're doing in this space than I think they really get credit for. One thing, for example, is that if you're a startup in the energy space, it is extremely hard to get traction 
with sales with utilities, right? Like the the utility sales cycle is just, I mean, that's a, a phrase we hear all the time as being months and months and months long. And so one of the things that EIP can do is help to facilitate those kind of sales contracts, those early sales contracts that help take early companies and put them on rocket boosters to to grow by landing big contracts. And it's a win-win, right, for the investors and for the portfolio companies. They also have just invested, when you look at who they've invested in, the companies, all of their investments are in companies that are just doing really, really interesting, smart stuff that's at the very edge of uh, what's possible right now. They're kind of all on the, I, I think, all on the leading edge. You know, Advanced Microgrid Solutions is one of their portfolio companies mm-hmm. that I've always uh, you know, found really interesting. I think they're doing some stuff that's truly unique. Green Lots, uh, another great example. Spark Fund is one of their yeah. investments. And so, so I just started looking down their list of portfolio companies and it was like almost all the people in the business who I lo- have looked at and said they're doing something smart, EIP had put some money in the door. And so anyways, I think that as a fund, what they're doing is really interesting. They've also got a credit fund and so they're able to provide debt as well as, as equity, which means for companies that are in that spot where they're in between rounds and they're they're looking at debt, you know, there's an opportunity for them to do the debt financing. And so they just are, they're in a really interesting space. They also have invested heavily. If you look at what sets venture capitalists apart, there's this great quote that venture capitalists is just one more bagel shop on a street of bagel shops and everybody sells nothing but bagels. And so you have to find some way to set yourself apart as a venture capitalist because everyone's money looks the same and spends the same. Everybody tries to come up with their edge and their competitive advantage. And EIP has, I think, very smartly doubled down on the idea that the competitive advantage is that facilitating the business with utilities and also the research and strategy piece. And then bringing on a team of people who are extremely smart about what's happening in the energy industry and who can advise and guide companies, both portfolio companies and utilities on what to do. And so I'm sure you've seen, you know, Shale Khan, formerly of GTM Research is here, right? They've got an incredible team of very smart people doing that. And I think it just for for an energy company in this world right now, that's what you need is you need insightful, smart commentary on what's changing and what's moving. And uh, and so I think that, that in that way, they've really done a good job of setting themselves apart. My new role here is, is chief of staff. And in that role, my job is to help our CEO, uh, Hans Kobler, who's a former, formerly worked at uh, GE Capital doing all of their energy investments and really kind of you know, pioneered that corporate venture capital and energy as a model. And so it's supporting him, helping him to be more efficient, helping the leadership team overall to be more efficient, and then ultimately helping the, the whole business to be more efficient and looking at how the fund runs its business and to accelerate that wherever I can. So it's an exciting place to be. You know, from that, you have a chance to sit at not just the forefront, the bleeding edge of what's happening in our industry, but you're putting money to work in it. What mega trends are you seeing in the industry right now that we should all be thinking about? And how do you think entrepreneurs should be preparing themselves to stay ahead of the curve? Before saying anything on the mega trends, I would say that the nice thing about venture capital is the point that you just made, which is subtle but important about putting money to work. And that the interesting thing about being in venture capital is that your incentives are aligned to put money into companies that are kind of making the biggest possible impact on the industry, right? And uh, and that's one of the things that was attractive to me from a mission standpoint is that my incentives right now is that like all the money that's in play runs in parallel with how big of a company, how big this company's success is, right? And so my, my EIP's motivation and the thing we have to do really, really well is find companies that are going to truly transform the sector. And that is like the way to make an impact on climate change, right? Is to pull the lever 
and uh, the biggest levers you can find. And so I like that the incentives are aligned in that way. As far as mega trends, I mean, I think EIP has their own, but the ones that I, I have walking in the door are one, that increasing load from electrification. So, you know, the fact that utilities are going to see this uptick in, in EV adoption and that's going to drive a lot of additional demand. But at the same time, that prices for electricity will be cheaper. You know, what I'm seeing on my end is that the wholesale markets, especially like prices are kind of plummeting as we deploy more and more renewable energy. And on the retail side, while fixed costs may ratchet up, we're still seeing that overall, like the, the price of new renewable energy is just very, very low. So you've got this interesting dynamic of demand is going up, but at the same time, prices are going down. And what does that mean for everybody who's involved in the industry? And how do we deal with it? So that's, that's one big thing. The other mega trend is just that everything is getting so much more complicated. You know, that the the question of how do you tackle valuation of distributed resources on the grid, just that's an extremely complicated question. And like, it's funny how I feel, sometimes I feel bad for the people, all of us in the solar industry who it used to be so simple, just, you know, put a bunch of solar panels on a roof and then, and then roll out. And now we have to be thinking about like distribution level feeders and just all this stuff that was like, we used to just not have to worry about that at all. But there are these complicated and really interesting questions about how do we create a market model that allows for and accounts for and incentivizes distributed resources to the maximum extent possible? And do we give utilities a rate of return on those investments? And, and you know, just these things that are just complicated, but extremely, extremely nuanced. And the people who will benefit from that mega trend are the ones who are able to sort through the noise and find a signal. And that's why we're seeing more things like machine learning and AI. And I think even blockchain to some extent is a response to that complexity. And then the last one is maybe another response to that complexity, but it seems to me to be a mega trend, which is that the ecosystem of players in the industry is getting very, very muddy. Utilities are here, but oil companies are making major investments. Startups are in competitive retail markets you know, snatching customers away from utilities, but then getting bought by utilities. You've got EV companies and car companies and OEMs that are starting to play in this space. And they're just, just when you, when you ask uh, the question, if you just tried to ask the question like, okay, so who are the main players in the electricity industry today? You could spend 10 minutes answering that question now. And yeah. it didn't used to be that way. Mm -hmm. So I'd say those are the three mega trends that I find the most, the most interesting at the moment. You've had Phenomenal experience over a relatively short career, but nonetheless, you've been in the industry for almost a decade now. What advice, looking back, would you give yourself when you were starting out in solar and energy? Well, I think one of the pieces of advice that I would give myself that I, it's almost something that I did accidentally. And now it's something that's, you know, that is the advice I give to everyone else, which is that you should pick your boss much more so than pick your job, you know, or at least, at least have them both be extremely important in making your decision. If you're not working for somebody that you're really learning from, you're kind of robbing yourself of an opportunity there. Because there's so many people in this industry who are amazing people doing amazing things that I think just finding a way to get as close as possible to those folks and learn from them, mm. that's just extremely important. And I just got lucky. I, like, I fell into, into having people who who were like that, but uh, that's something that I would encourage people to do mm -hmm. proactively. I love to pick a little deeper into the idea. You know, bosses often can and should become mentors. I'd love to hear from your perspective. What are some key lessons or takeaways from the most important mentors in your life and career and things that you pass along as you now mentor others, especially 
now as you're going into the VC world? My first boss, in a way, was was one of my professors um, at school, who uh, Andrew Light, who, in addition to being a professor, he was doing the international climate negotiations, doing a lot of work around Paris and previously, and you know, Durban, South Africa, I think was when I started. And so, anyways, he, you know, he was involved in that world, but he was also teaching philosophy where I was going to school. There's this moment in this class where, as you can imagine, like undergrad philosophy classes can be pretty frustrating, right? <laughs> And, you know, people just like veer off in all sorts of crazy directions. And he was so dedicated to building an argument, moving on and then saying, so what does that mean? What does this mean now? And just this logical building of saying, okay, here's a premise. Let's debate that premise for a little while. But now let's accept that premise and move on and say, what does that mean for the future? And the reason that that was really important for me was because we were studying environmental pragmatism and environmental ethics. And he kind of said at some point, some version of the question like, if you really believe the following things, you know, you should be doing everything you can do in order to make it make a difference for for environmental causes. And, it, and there's this kind of cl- like click in my head of like where I drank the Kool-Aid a bit. And I was like, oh, he's right. Like, you know, if you really believe that this stuff is important, you should dedicate your life to making a difference in it. Um, so I think from him, one of the lessons I learned really was just this intellectual rigor and this commitment to pushing things to their logical conclusion and then living by it. I was super great to work for Shale and then also uh, MJ Shao at, at GTM, who were both super brilliant. And from them, the two biggest takeaways were definitely, one is that intellectual rigor is important, but that to some extent, like the best computer is a human being and that you can build all the models that you want. But at the end of the day, what's really happening is you're just taking in a lot of information and you are giving your best take on what is happening. And you're factoring in a lot of stuff that's beyond just numbers into that, which includes all the conversations you're having, all of your instincts, all the other things you might know about policy or whatever, you know, macroeconomics. But that like what happens in your head is that all that stuff gets calculated out and then whatever you spit out is something that you should trust and you should back. And so I think they really taught me the importance of as an analyst being willing to develop and stand by and then try to articulate your views on topics. You know, one of the things that impressed me about you early on is that you don't seem to have the, I'll do that, like, I'm going to hold on to that idea for later. Oh, that'd be a good idea, but I'm too young. Or, oh, that'd be a great idea, but I'm not connected enough. You tend to be very intentional about when you have an idea, you put it out in the world. And one of those, when you were quite young in your career, was uh, the notion of providing mentorship to others who are following along the similar path as you. You started a nonprofit around that. Can you talk a little bit about that? So back in 2013, we started, Jackie Weedman and I, who was my co-founder, started the Clean Energy Leadership Institute, which is a nonprofit that's dedicated to empowering young professionals for you know the next step in their careers and to become leaders in the clean energy space. And it's really been incredible. I mean, it's been one of the best things I've ever gotten to be a part of. And also one of the things that in some ways, like I, I, take the, I can take the least credit for because... <laughs> I may have set it in motion, but the momentum it's gathered since then has been a testament, like your so- like the solar tribe that you've got for Suncast. It's hard to take credit for that, right? Because what really is happening there is you've created the conditions in which other people can succeed. And then they do, and they get to know each other, and they build this amazing community. You just get to be a part of it, right? Without taking credit for it. And that's kind of how I feel about the Clean Energy Leadership Institute and the work that it's done over the last few years. I obviously spend a ton of time on it, uh, nights and weekends. But what it does is it brings in some of the best and brightest folks each year. You know, we have an extremely competitive application process that ends up with classes of about 30 people in San Francisco and then in D.C. 
they go in and over the course of 14 weeks or so, hear from experts in the industry who speak on a curriculum to give them a full sense of, of what's going on in clean energy from finance to engineering to the climate side to how to communicate about it. Uh, and they walk out of there with this toolbox of new tools uh, with tons of new information, with these connections with leaders in the industry today, and with these relationships with each other as a strong cohort. And we've had over 300 people go through this program now. Wow. Uh, and they are just, they're incredible. Like you, you, neither of us, Nico, would like, would get into the program if we had time. <laughs> like they're so much, they're so much smarter than me. And, uh, and I'm always like, you know, I'm always careful to be very, very nice to everyone because I'm like sure that I'm going to be working for one someday. And it's really exciting. And we've got a conference coming up here on October 24th and 25th, our first major conference called Empower, which is focused on young professionals uh, looking to make a splash in the clean energy field. And oh, cool. kind of our conceit, the thing that we're doing that's really, I find really interesting is that our panels are all a combination of CEOs and, and very high level folks and these young professionals who are kind of ju- who are the rising stars in the industry. Oh, sweet. And it's kind of half and half. And it's just, it's going to be really, really cool. There's a huge party the night before. Where's that going to be? When is it? Uh, so the, it's October 24th and 25th. It's in Washington, D.C. at the Sydney Harmon Hall Theater, oh, cool. uh, which is a really, really cool venue too. This like multi-level old theater. You know, you can find the tickets online at C-L-I-M-P-O-W-E-R.com. Yeah, it's going to be great. That sounds fantastic. I might have to put that on the calendar. Listen, as we wrap it up here, you know the drill. I want to dig into learning leadership and legacy. One of the things that I always say is that readers are leaders. I know that you, uh, as an analyst, are a voracious reader as well. Is there any book that you've given away or recommended the most and why? The one that I've actually given away the most is this book called Awareness by Anthony DeMello, who is a Jesuit who wound up uh, spending a lot of time in the East and learning about Buddhism. And uh, and he's just got, just got some really like that's that's the book that I think had the biggest impact on me after the first time reading through it. That's my heart one that I recommend. My head one, I, I can't quite figure out if I'm going to get made fun of for this one or not, but is Black Swan by uh, Taleb. I can't remember his first name, but I've read that book three or four times. And it's the only book I, one of the only books I've ever read three or four times. Mm. And I still don't understand all of it. <laughs> um, but I strongly recommend it because what it what the main thing I got out of it that has actually influenced me is the idea that the numbers behind things are not always quite what they seem. You know, So an average isn't indicative of this whole set of data you're looking at. Or you can still have extremely improbable things happen that have a very high impact and that you should be aware of those things. And mm-hmm. I like thinking about that in the personal context and in the company context, because sometimes it's really easy to dismiss things because they're low probability. And you ignore the fact that a low probability, high impact opportunity or venture might really be worth your time because the impact that it has is, is worth it, basically. So yeah, those are the two books I would, I would recommend. You, Adam, I think that you're an example. You are uh, certainly a mentor to many. I kind of carved this out as a way to get some insight into the daily thought process of leaders in our industry. What one thing do you do consistently that yields the greatest impact or results in your life? I would say it's about having enough structure to be effective and not so much structure that you slow yourself down Mm. is the big one. So I am somebody who left unchecked, I will develop a crazy interlocking system of of personal life management where I've got one note syncing to my Google calendar, syncing over to my app called Monday, which is sending me alerts. And, you know, and 
And I would spend all my time building that system and then just never using it, right? Hmm. Um, because I'm somebody who just likes sometimes finding and building new systems, but I have a hard time with the follow through. So on a personal level, what I've done is I've tried to pump the brakes when I find something that's good enough, right? Mm-hmm. And so now I have like a task list tracker, which I find extremely helpful and like useful. And I try to really just use that one thing, even though it's pretty simple. And I think that definitely yields the most results because it ensures that I make progress on things every day without going down the rabbit hole of like how to organize myself, which is a lifetime. Adam, you and I sometimes uh, only communicate through Twitter. I know that's one way to reach you. What's your Twitter handle? It's at Adam underscore S underscore James. Wonderful. All those underscores. Okay, Adam, let's end today with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I'm going to do you one better here, which is I'm going to make a prediction for the next three-year anniversary where I'm going to come on three years from now (laughs) about three things that will have happened. Perfect. All right. So number one is that we will get a disruptive energy company that is valued at over a billion dollars pre-IPO in the next three years. Wow. Number two, I bet there will be at least three major examples of utilities that are able to rate-base their distributed energy resource investments. Wow. And then number three is that Saudi Arabia will have made and then reneged on at least three solar projects that are over one gigawatt each. I love it. Those are fantastic. Uh, and we will, I will hold you to it. Hopefully we'll have you on before three years pass, Adam. But I would be happy at the six-year anniversary of Suncast to have you back on for, I don't know, that'll probably be something like episode 350 or 400 by then. Who knows? Thank you for the, those prognostications. If that or any uh, of the other things that we talk about here on Suncast do come true, you'll hear about it, my dear friends, in Suncast coming soon to an earbud near you. Adam, stoked to have you back on the show, man. Thank you so much. Nico, great to be here. Thanks for for having me on. And uh, thanks for putting together such a great and interesting show to listen to. As a listener, I think I'll speak on behalf of your listeners when I say thank you in case you haven't heard it enough lately. (laughs) I appreciate it, brother. You you were there from the beginning, man. (sighs) Wow. 117 times and it still is fun, Solar Warriors. You know, something else that I found fun recently in a little discovery... Why don't you try saying, hey, Alexa, play Suncast podcast on your Alexa-enabled device. You know, it works on Hey Google as well. I was amazed. It's a lot of fun. I did it this morning while I was cooking eggs. Seriously. Yes, I do listen to these episodes. I record them for me as much as I record them for you. Hey, something else that was fun was all the content that Adam and I recorded that I couldn't put into this episode. There wasn't enough time. And since I have a ton of other great interviews already teed up, I'm not particularly inclined right now to make it a two-part episode either. But there's one way that you can listen to it, and that's by joining the Suncast Tribe. I have exclusive content there that only Tribe members get to enjoy, including the rest of this episode. And that fantastic episode from SPI General Session, the exclusive content I teased last week, and so much more. You can go to mysuncast.com forward slash member to learn more. You know, the value and the price for joining is going to continue to increase. So I encourage you to check it out. Again, that's mysuncast.com forward slash member. And hey, even more fun, more than 100 book recommendations have been given so far by listeners. And if you've listened to episode 100, then you do know that we teased starting a book club with my buddy Scott Sullivan. 
I want to just let you know that we're going to be running a contest soon promoting the book club in which I'll be giving away some of those books. <laughs> you see how that works? So keep an eye out for that. How do I keep an eye out for that, you might say? Well, by joining my mailing list, of course. You'll find that over at mysuncast.com. And one last thing I've been wanting to do and add to the website and incorporate is Ask Nico segment. I've been getting more questions from listeners lately, so I'm going to try to determine the best way to capture them and discuss them as a kind of Ask Me Anything semi-regularly here on Suncast. So we're going to throw up a page called Ask Nico where you can leave your questions and I'll answer them. And stay tuned for that as well. And finally, more thank yous. I do, again, want to thank all the guests. It's been a wild ride. I've interviewed friends, uh, mentors, folks I've idolized, folks I've never met and built friendships with them. Similarly, I thank you, the listener. I don't actually have a show without you. You've become friends and I love the high fives. I love the virtual energy that we share together to my early fans friends and supporters who encourage me to keep going i'm looking at you luis morales paul grana pablo astorga Kristen kirsch stephen lacy tor valenza steve broyles edgar arvizu marco garcia and many more who have believed in me and in this work in those early days thank you a quick shout out to Jeff Brown, my original podcast coach, and to Corey Davis, the OG producer and guru who helped me launch Suncast from the shadows. To my buddy Austin Kellenberger, who helped me relaunch the show and was editor for, I don't know, some 30 or 40 episodes. To J.B. Glossinger, John Lee Dumas, Jared Easley, Andrew Warner, Harry Duran, and many others in this great podcast movement. You are mentors, but you've also become friends, and my life is better for it. To my current editor, co-producer, and friend, Chris, you helped make this magic happen. Thank you. And lastly, again, to my wife, without whom Suncast simply would not have existed. She's encouraged me to show up. And as we know, that's half the battle. Stay strong, Solar Warrior. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>